Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Professor Mike Dobb, who is director of the Public Health Advocacy Institute at Curtin University in Western Australia and a true pioneer in areas of tobacco and alcohol. He's been a national and international leader in action on tobacco for 40 years, initially from the UK, where he was the first full-time director of action on smoking and health, and from 1984 on in Australia, where he held a number of positions, including Director General of Health for Western Australia. Mike, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. So you've been fighting these tobacco wars for 40 years and more recently have thought about alcohol and, uh, and obesity and food-related issues. And a lot of people are curious about what lessons can be learned from all those years of, of fights against tobacco and how that might be applied into the obesity arena. So there are a number of questions I'd like to ask you in this context, but just sort of a basic raw question to begin with. How much do you think you can trust industry? I think the answer to that's very simple. You can't trust the industries in these areas. Why not? Because as we've learned from tobacco, they're incredibly tough and ruthless. Their job is to sell as much of the product as possible to whoever will use it. If we thought that there was any cause to trust them, we've learned over the years that they lie, they distort they manipulate, they undermine, and the tobacco documents that have been obtained through litigation in the U.S. show that they're even more cynical and nasty than we might have expected. So if you assume that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, whether it's tobacco or alcohol or junk food, these are companies whose only interest is in selling as much of the product as possible. It's in opposing any action that might reduce their sales, and you simply can't trust them. Worse than that, you can rely on them to distort the evidence and to undermine action that might reduce not only sales of their products, but the harms that result from that. So certainly there are people who feel that a different view ought to be taken in the case of the food industry because food is different from tobacco as a substance. Obviously, you need food to exist. You don't need tobacco to exist. Um, and there's some hope that the behavior of the industry might be different. Um, what do you have to say to that? I haven't seen any evidence to justify that. Of course, there are different segments of the food industry, whether you go from you know horticulture right through to the big big global companies. And, of course, there are differences between the outcomes. In any tobacco is harmful. Alcohol is harmful when used inappropriately. We all need to eat and so on. But you still have massive global industries that are promoting tobacco, alcohol, and junk food. And there is no evidence I'm aware of that cooperation with the junk food industry in particular has led to any benefits. If anything, it lets them off the hook. It enables them to keep doing what they're doing just to do more of it. You close one window on them and a 100 doors open. 
They'll find ways all around volunteer agreements and so on. They'll offer to run their own education programs when you know that they're feeble programs pretty much designed to have no impact. So I get tired of the argument that says to me, look, tobacco and alcohol and junk food, they're different. I know that. But the company's approaches are pretty much identical. And of course, the companies themselves have often been very, very closely linked. Well, let's get back to some of the lessons that may have may apply from the tobacco arena. There have been massive gains in the fight against tobacco in some of the developed countries. In our country, the number of people who smoke is less than half of what it was at one point. And you, I heard from you that the numbers in Australia are even more striking, starting off at a high of 75% of men now down around 15% or below. That's a remarkable progress. So what have been the major um, activities or interventions or policies that have made that possible? First of all, I think we have made great strides in tobacco, and those have saved millions of lives. On the other hand, if it were not for this tough and ruthless industry, we wouldn't have people smoking now. They've held us up every step of the way. And uh, I think you know, the people who head these companies are culpable in terms of the harm that is still being wrought and the damage that will further be wrought in developing countries especially. However, why have we made progress? First, we identified the problem. We identified the magnitude of the problem. We drew attention to it. We worked together. People working in, to in tobacco have worked together as coalitions. We developed consensus approaches. Dr. Nigel Gray from Australia, Hill Biatwright from Norway and others, pioneers in developing consensus approaches. People in tobacco control work closely together. We press for the same objectives. We are tough. We don't go for the soft options. We've continually sought tough action on tobacco because it's lethal and going for soft options gets nowhere. We've found politicians who understood the evidence, understood the need for action and were willing to act. And I think finally, Kelly, we've hung in there. It does take time. I often put up a slide about tobacco that says overnight success takes time. Year by year, you look at it and you get depressed, there's so little progress. And then suddenly, at the end of a number of years, you look at it and think, gee, you know, we've, we've actually made considerable progress. So I think if you look at where alcohol is and where obesity is, I would say that both of them, in a way, are 20 or 30 years behind tobacco. The magnitude's there, but we still have people who are going for soft options, we don't have all the people in the fields working closely together on, on consensus positions. They, we have people who frankly like to play with the industry, even though there's, I think, a lot of evidence that that just helps even with promotion of the product. So I, and, and we haven't yet had politicians who grasp the magnitude of the problem and the need for action. So I think some way behind, but I also think things can move a lot faster than that. So if you'd like to leave the soft options aside and work on what might be hard or, or more, um, more impactful options, what would those be in tobacco? What are the things that have made the difference the most? First, we have always stressed the need for a comprehensive approach. There's never one magic bullet. You need a comprehensive approach, and you get what you can along the way. You don't expect everybody to do everything all at once. 
What works with tobacco control in the comprehensive approach? Getting rid of tobacco promotion, tremendously important. A, it removes the incentives to smoke, a lot of incentives to smoke from kids. It makes public education much, much easier and advocacy much easier. Price, uh, so much evidence that price, as with alcohol, major determinant of what's going on in smoking for both adults and kids. Hard-hitting, sustained public education has an impact, considerable impact, associated with strong advocacy programs. With tobacco, a little different from obesity, although similar to alcohol in a way, um, campaigns to protect the non-smoker, those who are indirectly affected uh, affected uh, by the problem. And then a range of other things that really do make a difference. The advocacy-oriented activities, and more recently with tobacco, strong, effective labelling, plain packaging that we now have in Australia, that gets through too. So a comprehensive approach, but starting with getting rid of advertising for the product, with price, and with strong public education. Let's talk a bit about more about the public education. What are some of the key messages that are getting delivered? You mentioned the rights of the non-smoker as one of the things that gets communicated, but what are some of the other things that are the key messages that that are effective in these uh, Above all, above all, first and foremost, it's just graphically presenting the harms of smokers. Now, that makes some people uncomfortable, but gee, it makes a lot of people quit, and it gets through to kids. You know, what gets through to kids aren't advertising and media and even school programs for kids. It's the great public education mass media campaigns. So it's tough, hard-hitting campaigns about the consequences of smoking that will affect you as an individual. Mm-hmm. It's not about demonizing smoking, smokers, but it, 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 it can be about showing the harms, whether it be lung cancer or other cancers, heart disease, um, um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, whole range of other things, the direct consequences of smoking presented in various different graphic ways. One of the other things that make a difference too is, and this has been done to great effect in this country, is showing people what tobacco companies are trying to do because they're trying to keep you smoking even though they know that it's lethal and kills one and two regular smokers. So the messages really are about tough, hard-hitting campaigns, adequately funded and sustained now, we don't have graphic labels in the United States. Perhaps we will at some point, but now we don't. Could you paint us a picture of what it means, what these graphic labels might look like, or what exactly they're communicating? Sure. The The term that's used for our current our warnings in Australia that we've recently got is plain packaging. Now, that's a misnomer. They're actually packs where the government takes ownership, if you like, of the way the pack looks. So there is no glossy livery whatever. There are large pictures of people or who are uh, ill because of their smoking or a gangrenous foot or whatever it might be, the harms of smoking. They change to get some variety in there. There's information about the harms of smoking, information about quit light number if you want to, if you want to quit, And all the tobacco companies are allowed is a very small part of the pack where they have to print in a prescribed font the name of the brand. That's it. The rest is information about the harms of smoking 
encouraging you to quit, and it's on a backcloth that's designed on the basis of research to be in a colour that is least attractive to children and adults. So that's plain packaging. How important is it? Well, I can tell you from my experience in 40 years of tobacco, I have not seen the tobacco industry fight anything as ferociously as they fought plain packaging legislation in Australia. And that means that essentially it passes the scream test. The louder the tobacco industry scream, the more we know we're on the right track. And I believe that scream test also applies in areas like alcohol and obesity. If the tobacco, alcohol, junk food companies are opposing measures that public health authorities want and recommend, then you know they're going to work. So we'll come back and talk about the plain packaging experience, which I think is absolutely fascinating in a moment. But before we do that, you said something that surprised me, and it was that the youth responded to some of these graphic messages. I, I had the impression just from watching the tobacco field from a distance that kids weren't especially worried about the long-term consequences of smoking, and that was one of the reasons that providing health information wasn't so effective for them. But I'm hearing a different message from you. Yes. Now, I do think that we need education on smoking and other areas in schools, although the actual evidence for that isn't all that strong. We also know, that, of course, that some kids think they're immortal and so on. But what we have found is that kids do understand the evidence as it comes through from television and other mass media. That's how you get to them. They understand that this is a major health problem. They understand that smoking is not appropriate. They don't want their parents to smoke. They want them to quit. And there is a sort of trickle-down effect. So the best way to get through to kids with mass media is that it's not programs, mass media campaigns aimed at 12-year-olds. Kids don't want to think of themselves as just being 12, 13, 14-year-olds. They want to think of themselves as being older. It's media directed towards adults that has an overall effect. It gets across the harms very graphically. It gets across that this is something that it's not appropriate to do. And that's one of the reasons why smoking in Australia, for example, has declined dramatically among kids. That's why 25 years ago or more, three-quarters of our 12 to 17-year-olds had tried smoking. Now it's 25% or less who've even tried smoking. And where I come from, you know, around, um, around 5% of kids now, 12 to 17-year-olds, are regular smokers. So, of course, we'd like to have done more, but kids undoubtedly influenced by that, as well as factors like price. And all of that, of course, is hugely helped by the absence of tobacco advertising. You said um, you let off the podcast with what was a pretty damning impression you have of the behavior of the tobacco companies. Um, do you think that that same that making that public or letting people know about the behavior of the industry has been an important part of the movement to curb smoking rates? And how do you think that may apply into the food area? It certainly made an enormous difference. Decision-makers know, even if they talk to tobacco companies, decision-makers know that these are evil companies, that they are knowingly selling and promoting a product that kills one in two of its regular users. 
they know that there's an industry that's in this country has been convicted of racketeering. They know that there is monumental evidence about the sheer ruthlessness and cynicism of this industry. And of course, it has to inform their approaches to the industry. I don't think any decision maker has any real respect for the tobacco company executives they meet because they know they're just being paid a lot of money to be in, in a lethal business. So I think that has had a considerable effect on ensuring the public policy advances we have seen that essentially we know you cannot believe what tobacco companies say. International surveys show that in you know, global reputation surveys, they're rock bottom among all the industry categories and falling. And that helps us because when they're lobbying decision makers, they just know these people lie. How does that apply to, uh, to other industries? We probably have more evidence on tobacco companies than we do uh, uh, on the other industries. And you have to take them industry by industry. But I think that it certainly helps to draw attention to the cynicism of these industries. It helps to draw attention with alcohol, to the way that drinks industry companies, often associated with tobacco companies, are using the same techniques, are developing and marketing products clearly designed for the youthful palate. It helps in the obesity area to show how companies are marketing quite deliberately to children. And there's some wonderful work being done that's been done from the Rudd Center that demonstrates that so well. These are companies that are targeting kids far too young to be able to understand anything about possible harms, far too young to be able to understand anything about obesity. They're being ruthlessly and cynically targeted by major companies. Their products they produce, you know, the, the um, sugary drinks that have no benefit whatever, ruthlessly marketed to kids, using sports people, using every possible medium they can find. So drawing that to public attention helps and then helps to influence decision makers. It also, I think, influences the community because the community is not dumb. They do understand that they're being targeted. They do understand that their kids are being targeted. Get that message to them long enough and strong enough and they support action. So why don't we end with the following question. Um, if you would say there are a few key lessons that have been garnered through all the experience with tobacco that might be helpful for the people who are working on the, the obesity and nutrition-related issues, what would you say? First, you have the evidence. There is so much evidence. Keep drawing it to the public attention and the attention of, uh, of decision-makers, politicians, and others. Second, work together. Don't have a few silos here and there. Work together. Third, get more people who are actually interested in action rather than just discussing the issue. Develop comprehensive approaches, the consensus approaches that you can all agree on. And be tough, be hard-hitting, and hang in there. So many people give up because things don't seem to have changed overnight. If you hang in there, if you're tough enough, if you work together, you can get good results. And there's one other theme, I think, Kelly, that's important. With tobacco, we've shown that there are enormous health benefits to the results we're getting. We were earlier showing projections, 
how much worse the health consequences could be, but also how many lives could be saved. And I think ultimately, again, showing that to politicians, decision makers, maybe some of the health groups that aren't in there yet can make a real difference. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our guest is Professor Mike Daub, Director of the Public Health Advocacy Institute at Curtin University in Western Australia and a real pioneer in work with tobacco. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find a variety of resources there, including a newsletter that we send out, of course, at no cost on breaking news in the food policy arena, and, of course, a list of the other podcasts of the excellent visitors who have been to the Rudd Center. Thank you.